All right, Romans chapter 4. We're going to wrap this up. We'll be looking at, finally, 18 through 25. And today's message, The Faith That Receives Grace, part 3. This is the instruction. And what we're going to do is we'll go through a little bit of a recap. I'll give you the outline for the message. We'll read verses 18 through 25. And then we're going to look at this great faith that... Uh, the Apostle Paul points out for us through Abraham and what he's really an example of, not only salvation, but a pattern of sanctification uh, through faith. So today we're in our third part of the series, The Faith That Receives Grace. And we had the interlude and we had the introduction and now we have the instruction. And it was all set up because of what we're about to get in today, and it'll all wrap up and make sense. <clears throat> now, I will confess that once we get into the outline, uh, the second part of the outline will be a very lengthy portion of it because we're analyzing each uh, characteristic. We're analyzing the characteristics of this faith that Abraham had. So that'll be the majority of it. But the interlude was really a sort of pause between verses 17 and 18, if you remember, of this chapter. And at that time, we spent time focusing on moments of remembrance given throughout the Bible, one of which was made by a name that God called himself, the God that brought Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees. And it was set up as a remembrance stone, if you will, uh, of words given to remember how and when God called Abraham, where he was at in his life. Uh, it was a, a man who did not know God, and God revealed himself to Abraham, just like he does to all of us. And so that was the interlude. Then we went to the introduction of this whole section. And I believe firmly without this introduction, these verses that we're about to go through uh, would be much more difficult to understand. So we take a closer look at faith at that time. And at first glance, it appeared that Abraham was sort of this super saint, when we look at these characteristics, you know, talks about he doesn't stagger, he's unwavering. So we'll talk more about that. But it's a faith that rests in the knowledge that God is sovereign and in control of every aspect of our lives. We took a look at that saving faith, and we took a look at providential faith, and we took a look at a faith that rests in the Lord because we know he's omnipotent, we know he's sovereign. And we know he has our whole life in his hands. And as we carry that through looking at Abraham's life, we were able to see how his faith was developed. Not only is he a design of saving faith, he is an outline of faith developed in us. And so we journeyed together briefly through some key points in Abraham's life. Remember with me, from age 60 he's called. And from age 60 to 75 he's originally called and then he's given a promise that is reiterated. We saw how Abraham and Sarah attempted to fulfill that promise through human effort. And then we saw their names changed along with the new meanings that they have for their lives. And when the promise was given again, there was more detail, you remember. Sarah would have the child of promise. They were told specifically to name his name Isaac. And he told them it would be a year later. And this would all be done after they are humanly incapable of childbearing. So against impossible odds, it would be a miraculous birth. This then is where we had picked up verse 18 in this chapter, where the Apostle Paul now takes us through a list of these characteristics of Abraham's faith to show us how our faith is developed, how? by divine power and not human effort. By divine power and not human effort. So that's our introduction. Now let me give you our outline. We're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at the entity of faith. And to do that, we're going to go briefly back to verse 17. We're going to look at the examination of faith. And then we'll look at the effects of faith. So the entity, the examination, the effects. And really, the entity or the object. And who is the object? It's God. 
So to tie this all in, we have to then go back briefly to verse 17 for a moment because it stresses a key element of faith, the object of our faith. Remember with me back in verse 17 where it says this, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who who he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. So this is the entity that Abraham placed his faith in. This is the God of all creation. Abraham's faith was placed in the God that created everything, created the universe. His faith was placed in a God who called him out of paganism into salvation. The God that can call someone out of death and give them eternal life, which we all have been for those of us who have accepted Christ. And in this verse, Paul inserts this quote here from Genesis 17.5, and it's a promise that is given. And then at this point in Abraham's life, when he's called, when this promise is given, remember with me, at that time, there was no distinction between Jew and Gentile, was there? There was no nation of Israel. There was none of that. Yet God called him out at that time. That is a key point. That is an important point. Abraham's faith in God was accounted to him for righteousness at that time when there was nothing else. And it was done this way. Why? To show that salvation is by grace for all men for all time. And it's God who gives life to the dead and he calls into existence that which did not exist. The one true God that calls people, places, and events into existence solely by His divine and sovereign determination. That is the God that He served. That's the God we serve. That's the object of His faith. That's how He could get to that point to say, I know everything's possible with the Lord. And when He gives me a promise, I can follow it. So the object of Abraham's faith is in a God who is then what? He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. That's the God we serve. And this gives us the entity or the object of his great faith as we look back at verse 17. Now, going into verses 18 through 21, let's finally read through those and then we'll go through what he's talking about here. Now, again, this will be a lengthy portion of our message today, but very key and very important. It says, verse 18, it says, Who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, against all odds, the Apostle Paul is telling us that Abraham trusted God and Abraham believed the promises that were given to him. Paul is telling us that Abraham believed in the promise to be the father of how many nations? Of many nations. At a time when there was no reasonable human hope to believe it. There was nothing backing up the promise that he could see other than what? God's word. God's word. So how did Abraham come to this place of trust in the Lord? Of trust in In God. Don't we want to know that? I want to know that. You see, God promised Abraham a numberless posterity when what? He had no children, none whatsoever. And at the time of the first promise of these descendants, childbearing, remember, was still possible. And how do we know that? Because Abraham was 75 and he had Ishmael with Hagar. Remember that. So it was proven that he could have children still. And so now the Apostle Paul brings it forward. 
Now it's a different time in Abraham's life. We just read it. Here Abraham is almost 100 years old and Sarah is 90. Now we already know, right, that Sarah was barren. Throughout their marriage, she couldn't have children. We figured out who the problem was when Abraham had Ishmael with Hagar. So we knew it wasn't Abraham. But at age 90 now, think about it. The same truth for her would apply. If she was barren at 70, she would still be barren now at 90. So we already know that it's her. But Abraham, here he is, having hope that God would fulfill the promise when there should have been no hope. He should have had no hope. And yet it tells us here that Abraham did not waver. He did not doubt in unbelief. Think about that. In other words, his mind was not divided. He was fully convinced that God was going to do this. That God would say, that God would do what he said he was going to do. And God said it, Abraham believed it, and that settled it. As far as the patriarch of the faith was concerned, there was only one impossibility. And that impossibility was that God cannot lie. He believes that, that God cannot lie. So in verse 18, as we read, he in hope believed. In verse 19, he was not weak in faith despite these odds. In verse 20, he was not divided in his thinking by unbelief. And he was empowered by faith. And in verse 21, he was fully persuaded that God had the ability to do what he said he was going to do. And this is the analysis or the examination of characteristics of his faith. The kind of faith that I would think we would all want to appropriate to our lives personally, don't you? This is the kind of faith that I want to have. Is it not the kind of faith that you want to have? How did he get this kind of faith? Abraham seems like some super saint here. I mean, who is like this? When you look out into the world today, who has faith like this? Do we even see it? I mean, who demonstrates this kind of faith? How is this faith given and how is it received and how can I receive it? Well, to apply this faith appropriately to our lives, we have to remember some things. Abraham, he was human. He had times of doubt. He had times of fear. And he had times of uncertainty. Do you know some Christians sometimes that think to themselves or they portray this picture that they have all faith? That they can never, that they never have a doubt? That they're all powerful, super saint? Do you ever get that impression from some people? I do. I get that impression. And they never want to show a flaw in front of you. But yet we're all flawed. And what I love about the Bible is that it points out all the flaws of these super saints. So why do we try to be any different? We can, it, those things can be exposed. We can share our weaknesses. In fact, showing weakness is great humility. And it can be a good thing, as we will see. See, Abraham had a faith that was developed, and it grew. It didn't start here. It didn't start here. It grew through the issues of his life. You see, after they attempted to fulfill God's plan in their flesh, God came again and gave another promise, didn't he? They planned to do this in their flesh at age 75 when he was 75. But after they attempted to fulfill God's plan in their flesh, God came again. You guys didn't pass the test. Got to go through it again. And now I'm making things very impossible for you to accomplish. Pretty amazing. At the age of 99, God appears to Abraham again with the sign of the covenant, which we find in Genesis chapter 17, 15 through 18. Let me read it to you. It says, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she, be, she shall be a mother of many nations. Kings of people shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and listened, and what? And said, oh, I believe you? No, he laughed. And he said in his heart, 
Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, Lord, look at what I did. Can you use that instead of giving me the promise that you have? Because I don't see what you're going to do. Lord, use Ishmael, because I don't see how it's possible. It's virtually impossible. Now, let me ask you something. Does this sound like a man who Paul is describing here? Who's unwavering? Who's unstaggering in faith? No, it sounds to me like this guy is going, you mean this old lady is going to have a kid? I don't believe it. She can't do it. I know I could do it, but she can't do it. I mean, think about that. Does, this doesn't sound like a man who's convinced of the promises of God to me. Not at all. So we have to ask, was the Apostle Paul lying about Abraham's faith? He can't lie about Abraham's faith. Everybody else knows the story of Abraham and everything that he went through. So it seemed incredible here to Abraham in these verses that a child could be born to his 90-year-old barren wife. It's a promise that he could not wrap his mind around. So here, and this is a key for all of us, he shows what? He shows struggle in his faith. And there's nothing wrong with a struggling faith. It gets us to pursue an answer because we know God's true. And when we know that God is the object of our faith, he's omnipotent, all-powerful, and he can do everything, and he's sovereign and in control, then we know we are wrong, not God. We are wrong, so we need to figure it out. You see, we can have a struggling faith, and here he shows struggle in it. Not doubt, but struggle, and there's a difference. You see, when things are going well in our lives, isn't it easy to trust God? Think about it. I get up in the morning, I'm feeling pretty good. Got my cup of coffee, drive to work. Freeway's clear. Oh my gosh, this is a great day. You're talking to everybody throughout the day. Everything's good. No issues come up. You drive home. Dinner's great. You're chilling with the kids and the family, watching your favorite show. Go to bed. Great day. Man, God is so good. I can trust Him. And I'm so grateful for everything that He does. So easy, isn't it? But it's when things seem impossible that it's harder to trust Him. In fact, it's easier to distrust him. God, I don't have enough money in my bank account this month. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know what I'm going to do. I got to go do this. I got to go do that. It's easier to distrust the Lord for his provisions. Now, that's all Abraham. Take a look at Sarah for a moment. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a picture. Hebrews 11, 11 says, By faith... Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because, and listen, she judged him, God, faithful who had promised. You mean Sarah had this kind of unstaggering, unwavering faith as well? But was she always that way? No. What's the famous thing that happened with Sarah? She was listening to the conversation, she laughed, and when God called her out on it, she lied about laughing. That's what was going on with Sarah. So the writer of Hebrews makes it seem that she too had this unwavering faith. And so it seems from the Genesis narratives that Paul was mistaken about all this faith. Listen, in another area, Abraham admits openly that he could not understand how all these promises would be fulfilled. We see this in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 3. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But listen now. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. I've got no children of my own, yet you're telling me somebody's going to come from my body and her body to fulfill these promises. 
I mean, does it sound like Abraham has this unwavering, unstaggering faith? No. So Abraham and Sarah at one point are struggling in their faith. And struggling faith is not doubt, just as temptation to sin is not sin. Struggling faith is not doubt, just as temptation to sin is not sin. Faith is not saying, I believe it's going to happen because I want it to happen. That's not faith. That's presumption. That's hope. I want this to happen, but that's just hoping that something I want to happen will happen. But if God didn't say it, yet we're asking for it, do you think God's going to honor that? Probably not. Faith is saying God said it and he will do it, but also adding this, according to his will. According to his will. Faith is saying, I believe God can do anything. I just don't know if he wants to do this in this case. That's faith. That's leaving it in the hands of God and being okay with the decision. Take, for example, those who are sick or diagnosed with some type of terminal disease. I know God can heal them. Do you? The Bible tells us he can. I know he's all powerful to do so. But does he always? No. Even if I pray my hardest, even if I believe he can do it, even if I want it to happen, no, he doesn't always do it. And if we do that, that's turning faith into what? A work. He's doing it because I told him to do it. No, he's going to do it according to his will. Why? He's going to do whatever glorifies his name. Whatever glorifies his name. We could ask for those things, but we may not always get the answer that we want. That's faith. Remember verse 20 in, these ch in chapter 4 of Romans. It tells us that Abraham was strengthened in faith. What does that imply? That he grew strong in it. That there's a weak faith, that there's a strong faith, yet it's still faith. It's so good. The very fact that Abraham was trying to understand how God's promise could be fulfilled indicates what? That he's looking for a way of fulfillment. Although he could not yet see a way, he's looking for a way. Weaker faith might have simply succumbed to doubt. But sincere struggling with spiritual problems comes from strong, godly faith. I don't understand it, but I know who's in charge, and I'm going to ask him to reveal it to me. And I hope that he does, but if he doesn't, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to believe him. Such faith refuses to doubt and trust God's promises, even when no way of fulfillment is humanly imaginable. God's testing of his children's faith is to design to do what? To develop, to strengthen their trust. Just like verse 20 tells us what happened with Abraham. It's to strengthen our trust as hard as it seems sometimes. That's what it's designed to do. James 1, 2, and 4 tells us, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing what? That the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What does this scripture point to? It implies there's growth in faith. That's what it's showing us. John Calvin said that believers are never so enlightened that there are no remains of ignorance, nor is the heart so established that there are no misgivings. You're going to have times of struggle. You're going to have times of doubt. That's this walk of faith. doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. He's developing us. So we, don't, we still have misgivings. In other words, in our Christian walk, we'll have struggles with our faith. It's been said that Christians who claim to understand all God's truths, and who claim to envision the fulfillment of all of His promises, they're claiming things in His name, do not demonstrate great faith, they only demonstrate great presumption. Can't call things into existence. Abraham and Sarah presumed, remember. 
they attempted to do things in their own power. The Lord gave them a promise. They didn't see how it could be done, so they took it upon themselves to do it. And I tell you that that's how a lot of people live their lives as Christians. They think the Lord wants them to have this or that or this position or whatever it might be. They pray over it, and then they go attempt to do it rather than waiting on the Lord who actually is telling them what to do. So God has to bring them to a place where everything is humanly impossible, beyond their comprehension. Do you ever find God bringing you to a place like that? It may not be a place like they were, but a place in your life where you can't see how it's possible. Let me tell you something. When God puts you in that place, He's teaching you something. He's teaching us something. He's giving us a lesson. So godly faith is not necessarily fully or full understanding. Listen, godly faith is not necessarily full understanding, but it is full trust. It is full trust in the object of our faith, the entity who is God. So Jesus, remember, speaking about forgiving others to the disciples, it invokes in Luke 17 an interesting response from them. Do you remember this? He's telling them to forgive others. And what do they do? They cry out to Jesus, increase our faith. Because Lord, we can't do that. I can't forgive people like you're telling me to forgive if they do something to me. It seems impossible. But see, check this out. They quickly knew their weakness, didn't they? And they cried out to the Lord, increase my faith. What does it imply? Faith grows, doesn't it? Faith grows. They knew their weaknesses. And what's the Lord's response in Luke 17, 6? The Lord says, if you have faith, like Abraham at the end, unwavering, unstaggering? No. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, a mustard seed at that time, it, to the Jews, they would be familiar with it, but it was the smallest seed to them that they would be familiar with. And it's a seed that would bloom into a bush about five, maybe even 15 feet. So it develops and it grows. This was the point. The fact of the matter was that the apostles had believed in Jesus Christ, right? They had faith in the Lord already. Because they asked the Lord to increase their faith didn't mean they didn't have any faith. What it did show is their humility and they were honest about their weakness. And it's always good to be honest about your weakness. Because sometimes I think when we pray, we think to ourselves, oh, I got to just show the Lord I really believe He can do it. And No, Lord, I, I know You can do all things. I don't know if You want to do this, and I just don't see how. But I trust You. But I believe You. That is humility. That's showing your weakness. And there's nothing wrong with that. You see, they took their trust away from self very quickly, didn't they? And they put it on Jesus, the object of their faith, just as Abraham did. Remember, when he's first called, God gave him enlightenment enough to have faith in him. We don't know what God showed him to let him or to get him to go in this original call, but we do know it was enough to get him to go. And then what? God accounted to him for righteousness at that point. So the faith that the Apostle Paul is unfolding for us here was not the faith that Abraham had when God found him. It's a different faith now. It grew. It began as this mustard seed. And it's so encouraging. Listen, it was a faith that was developed in him turned into an unwavering and unstaggering faith. A faith that believed, even in the times that seemed impossible, against overwhelming odds, and not a faith that says, I want this, so God, please fulfill it, but a faith that says, God declared it, I trust it, and that resolves it. If He said it, He will do it, and not if I want it, He will do it. That's the difference. The kind of faith that would stand against an evil king, remember, commanding idol worship, 
Remember this? The faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember their faith? They, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was going to throw them into the fire, and they would not worship his idols. And it's the kind of faith that said God would save them from the fiery furnace. But that's not all they said, was it? What else did they say? But even if he doesn't, we're still not going to do it. God can save us, but even if he doesn't. See, they believed he could do it. They just didn't know if he would. And it's the same for us. In the lives of those who display the most powerful faith, it's been said, there is the most humility. Sharing our weaknesses with the Lord. Man, God, I believe you can do all things. I don't know if you want to do this, but I'm going to pray that you would. If it's whose will? Your will. So when the apostles, remember, struggled with faith, did they lose all of a sudden their salvation? Was it gone? I don't believe in the Lord. Oh, I don't know how he can do this. Is it gone? Did they just lose it? When those three young men ready to be thrown into the fire said, even if he doesn't do this, we will still not worship false gods. Did they lack faith in God at all? Not at all. When Abraham struggled and laughed, was he telling God you're crazy? And was his saving faith gone then all of a sudden? No. But do you know that that's what some people teach? That that's what happens? Oh, you show a little bit of, you know, struggle or doubt. You can't, how can you be saved? You can't be saved. You know, you, you can't have doubts. What do you mean? I don't read that. I don't see that in the characters of the Bible. Everybody struggles. A struggling faith is sometimes good because it searches and it pursues the Lord and the answers. And then it trusts. When there's something that you don't understand in the Bible, do you just say, I don't care, forget it? Or do you say, no, I want to understand, Lord. Can you teach me? Can you develop this in me? Can you show me? And it's that pursuit that shows that you even are saved. A false faith will succumb to the pressures and will leave the faith. And there was never a true trust in the Lord at all. A believer, no matter if faith is great or small, depends completely on him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. A struggling faith. Now before Abraham, you remember all the way back in Genesis 22, offers up Isaac as a sacrifice. Getting back to Abraham now. What did he do? He circumcised himself as God commanded, didn't he? This was at a time when his faith had been developed. It wasn't at the beginning. It was towards the end. This is when Isaac was born. He's over a hundred now and has given the sign of the covenant. Remember in Romans 4, 9 through 11, it says, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, the righteousness might be imputed to them also. So when Paul gives this list of these characteristics of Abraham's faith, and then in verse 22 says, and therefore it's accounted to him for righteousness, it seems that Paul is saying all these things he demonstrated, and then God accounted to him for righteousness. But you can't read it like that because we already know he was saved. Hebrews just told us. Or Romans 4, 9 through 11 just told us. It began small. It staggered its struggle. Became great. It would be the faith that was needed for the most critical test of all. To sacrifice his son. God takes us from a test to a test. 
and he develops us in that way. But listen, does God test our faith because he doesn't know where we're at? Do you think God tests our faith because he doesn't know? He wants to see. I don't believe that. I believe he tests our faith to show us where we're at ourselves. Because we get to see a lot through that, don't we? Do I really trust him? He wants to show us where we are at. Have we grown in faith? You see, in the school of faith, as Warren Wiersbe says, we must have occasional tests or we will never know where we are spiritually. Are you going through tests? Do you see them as tests? Do you cry out to the Lord for help? Because if you're not being tested, maybe you need to ask yourself, where's my walk with the Lord? Is he helping develop me? Is he growing me? Regarding Abraham's life, Arthur Schopenhauer said, the first 40 years of life give us the text of Abraham's life, and the next 30 years supply the commentary. Pretty interesting. It's much like that for us in our born-again Christian life. The text of our lives is Habakkuk uh, 2.4. The just shall live by his faith. But the commentary of our lives is being written one day at a time as we live in obedience. That's the commentary being written every day. So God allows tests in our lives, and they're used as some sort of a checkpoint, right? So it's, it, it, is everything difficult, everything difficult in our life, every experience, do you believe that everything is a personal test from God? Because not everything is. It can become that, but not everything is. Sometimes difficulties are just circumstantial. It's just life. It's just how it goes for everybody. Ecclesiastes 9.2 All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath, as he who fears an oath. So again, it's just the way of a fallen world. And we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, but they can become a test if the Lord allows it. And sometimes... We create pain in our own lives because of disobedience. We're human. We have desires. We're tempted. We're always tempted, aren't we? I mean, it's imperative that we distinguish between trials and temptations. And who never tempts? God never tempts. The Bible tells us God never tempts. So who's the tempter? It's Satan who tempts. And what does he tempt? Our human desires, our wants, our needs. How do we know? Because James 1, 12-16 tells us, Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say he is tempted I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And we all go through temptations. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Corinthians 10, 13-14 says, No temptation has overtaken you such as is common to, man, common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. We go through the same temptations. There's no temptation that's different. They're all common, and we all are tempted in one way or another. But although we experience the same temptations, we don't all experience the same tests by the Lord. Some are smaller, some are bigger, and they're just different in our lives. And listen, while Satan uses temptations in our lives to attempt to bring out the worst in us, God uses tests in our lives to bring out the best in us. It's so good, isn't it? He is such a good God to us. Proverbs 17.3 says, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests 
the hearts. He heats those things up, gets the sediment out, scrapes it off, purifies us through these things in our lives. And when these tests come our way, we can be certain that what? That He has prepared us for them. He has. I cannot develop this because we don't have the time, but go read Deuteronomy chapter 7. And you can read for yourself how God doesn't give us things all at once because they can overtake us. He leads us through them. So He will never allow a test that He does not think that we're ready for. And not everything is a test, as we just went through. But God does test. Now, we have, through through this series, we've sprinkled the truths of Abraham's life throughout it. We have seen the tests and the calls that Abraham had on his life. Now what I want you to do is turn to Genesis chapter 22. Because Genesis chapter 22 records for us the greatest test of Abraham's life that we get to see. Genesis chapter 22, and I'm going to start in verses 1 through 5. And it says this, Genesis chapter 2, 1 through 5. Now it came to pass, after these things, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Now, there's a lot of application in these verses, and we're not going to fully develop every single thing. So those of you expecting me to share what is typically shared are probably going to get disappointed. And there are a lot of truths in here, but I want to point out a few things. You see, it says here in these verses, So it came to pass after these things. After what things? After his original call and all the lessons Abraham had already experienced, all of God's tests, Abraham now here is over 100 years old. He's seen God do a lot of things in his life, a lot of promises, a lot of things have happened, right? And he's been enrolled in the school of faith as everybody, every one of us are. And God now is going to test Abraham again. That's much like you and I as believers in Jesus Christ. What a lesson. Think about his age. We're never too old to learn new truths, are we? Never. Faith, our faith will always be stretched. Just get used to it. That's what's going to happen. Just when you think you've arrived and you think to yourself, okay, what else can the Lord show me? I mean, I fully surrendered. I'm completely his. And then you discover, no, there's more inside. There's more junk in there. There's more things that he needs to teach me. And this test, and this is what happens to all of us, this test for Abraham had to be much more real. It's not just getting up and leaving now. It's getting up and leaving and doing something that you don't want to do. That's huge. God's telling him, take your son Isaac and kill him, basically. And for, for this to be a real test... It had to defy logic. It had to be something Abraham wanted to resist. Don't you find that in your flesh when God's testing you sometimes? It's something that I want to resist, I don't want to do. Now God gives him very specific instructions. He told Abraham to go, just like he did before at the beginning of his call. And when he tells Abraham to take Isaac, he doesn't just say, take Isaac your son. He says, take now your son, but not just that, your only son. Your only offspring, who you begot with Sarah, who you thought it was impossible. The only son of promise, whom you love, he says. Take him to Mount Moriah. 
where Jerusalem will eventually be situated. He doesn't say that, but we know that. And eventually where Calvary is, Mount Moriah, where Jesus will die on the cross. Take him up, he says, and offer him as a burnt offering. Take him up and kill him. Take him up, Isaac, and give him to me. Or take him up, Abraham, and give Isaac to me. You see, it's one thing to claim to trust God's word when we're waiting for something, right? But when God gives us something that we've trusted him and obeyed him for it, because he said he would do it and we've received it, oh, that's harder to give up, isn't it? When we've received it. You see, this was a test of how much Abraham would obey God's word. Would he cling to the boy now that he had him? Or would he still obey and return him to the Lord? In other words, how far would Abraham go in obedience? How far? Did he really believe that God would still keep his word and raise the seed of promise? So much application. Now it tells us that Abraham went. It tells us that he even chops the wood for the sacrifice. But all Abraham knew at this point was that God designed the future around Isaac. And now God's telling him to sacrifice Isaac, to kill him. Now, can you imagine? I can't reconcile that. How do you reconcile the two? Abraham can't reconcile the two in his mind. But although he couldn't reconcile those two things, Abraham did what? He obeyed anyway. When Abraham and Isaac go off, Abraham tells the servants that they'll both return. Don't worry about it. We're going to come back. So Abraham understands right here that God would provide a sacrifice. But even if Isaac was killed, God had the power to raise him up again. This is what he believes. Abraham knew this because of what? He's seen it before. God calls him out as ungodly and God made the womb of a barren wife at the age of 90 to be something living. He's seen this happen in different ways. He's seen it all. This is the faith developed. How do we know this? Hebrews 11, 17 and through 19 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. He has been in similar situations before, and God has come through in his promises. That's faith. That's faith developed. That's faith grown Our faith is not really tested until God asks us to bear what seems unbearable, to do what seems unreasonable, and expect what seems impossible. In other words, we live by what? Promises and not explanations. That's Christian life. We live by promises and not explanations. What's the first thing you do when somebody says, I want you to go do this? You start asking how. How do I get there? What do you need me to do? What I mean, everything. Sometimes God says, go do this. And you're like, okay, how? Go. I'm not going to explain it. You're going to learn along the way. Anybody experience that in their life? You're going to learn along the way. And I'm going to show you why. Because I want you to trust me. Look to me. Nobody else. I mean, I remember going through my own calling running to this pastor, running to that pastor, asking all these questions and never getting an answer. And the Lord just taking me and saying, look to me, just look to me. I don't want to. I want to know how all this is done. How are we supposed to do this? Do you think I want to do things the same way? I may not. I mean, what? think about the things in your own life. We live by promises, not explanations. Genesis 22, going on in verse 6 through 14, it says this. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. He laid it on Isaac, his son. He took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. 
you imagine a picture you talk to your kids that way? <laughs> my father, my son. Actually, my boys do do that. My kids do that. Anyway, then he said, look, the fire in the wood. But where's the lamb for a burnt offering? So here's Isaac. Like He's putting all of this together, right? Like What's happening here? Where is it? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there, placed the wood in order. He bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Meanwhile, he's quiet, right? Isaac, we're not totally saying a word. But listen to this in verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now I know. More importantly, now you know. Now you know what I will do in your life. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horn. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So here they are, all set up on this altar. Isaac's looking around for the sacrifice, like, you know, now he's bound and tied up, laid down, and is, do you think he's still looking around, or do you think he's figuring it out? But Abraham, here he is, reveals his faith by saying, God will provide. I know he'll provide, but even if he doesn't, I know he can raise you from the dead. He doesn't say that, but it's implied. And now this knife is ready to plunge into Isaac, and then Jesus shows up as a theophany. Jesus shows up the angel of the Lord, in the Old Testament. Abraham is now truly a man that would hold nothing back from God. He would hold nothing back. God required his best from Abraham, and Abraham gave his best every time now. He gave his best. And God truly provided his own sacrifice. Remember Jesus said, Abraham lived to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. This is where he sees it. This is where he sees Jesus as Lord and Savior, the sacrifice coming. It was right here. Now, the main point of this chapter in Genesis is the portrayal of an obedient servant worshiping God in faith and at great cost, which we all go through. But with it, with it, we also see the doctrine of atonement. It's very clear. When God told Abraham to take his only son that he loved, what was he saying? Your only beloved son, your only begotten son. God overemphasized that this was Abraham's only son of promise. It was a miraculous birth. And then in this, God is identifying himself with Abraham. Because God would have a son of miraculous birth, a virgin birth, and a son willing to do his father's will, just like Isaac was just like Abraham was. And in figure, he was received back from the dead. It was a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when Isaac asks about the sacrifice, Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb, you remember. And when God provided the ram caught in the thicket, Abraham knew it was the Lord. This promise was not ultimately fulfilled by the ram, though, we know. It's by the Lamb of God. John 1, 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was the reference. And because God provided for himself and for Abraham, Abraham gives that place a name, doesn't he? The Lord will see to it. The Lord will provide. This is the Jehovah Jireh right here. The Lord will provide. And when you're going through those tests, remember that name. Jehovah Jireh. I mean, what could Abraham depend on, on at this point? Think about it. He can't depend on his feelings, can he? If he depended on his feelings, man, he may turn around and run. He may never go. 
You can't, you and I cannot depend on our feelings. They are misleading. They will mislead us. Imagine the pain that Abraham was experiencing and feeling, knowing that he would have to kill Isaac. I can't even imagine it. It's been said, listen, that God spared Abraham's heart a pang that he would not spare his own. Because he sacrifices, God sacrificed his own son for us in place of this. Listen, Abraham could not depend on other people, though, either. Nobody else was with him. His wife was back at camp. The other two servants were back. I mean, he can't go to them and say, and seek wise counsel, right? And there's good in that, but he couldn't go do that. He couldn't ask anybody else. He couldn't express his feelings to anybody else. He had to go directly to the Lord. What a great place to be during impossible times. We don't like that. Some trials and tests in our lives must be faced alone. I don't like that. Do you like that? I don't. But sometimes they have to. Why? So we solely depend on God. It is only then that we can see what He can and will truly do. And what is that? Whatever is going to glorify His name. We're going to see Him glorify His name through these things in our lives. And when He fulfills the need that glorifies Himself, we get to share in the blessings. And it's a glorious thing. The Lord provides for our needs in the place of His assignment. When we're in obedience, we're found in the right place at the right time. In other words, we can expect God's provisions when we're in His will. Yes? We can expect His provisions when we're in His will. In obedience, listen, Abraham was at the right place so God could meet his needs. And when did he meet his needs? Right when he needed it. And how much did he meet it? Did he meet it with ten rams? No, he met it with one, exactly what he needed. We want more, and he might give us more. So ask for more. There's nothing wrong with that, but he'll always give us what we need. Always what we need, every single time. God meets our needs just at the right time. Not a minute too early or too late. So if you're at a place in your life thinking, I've been praying for this, I need it now, and he hasn't come through, maybe it's not the last minute yet. Maybe you think it's the last minute. When we are in God's will, we have the right to expect his provisions. Listen, when God's work is done God's way, it will not lack what? God's support. It won't. God is not obligated to bless my ideas or projects, but he's obligated to support his work if it's done in his way. In times of testing, it's very easy to think about our needs and our burdens, isn't it? But we must keep our eyes focused on how whatever we're going through is going to bring glory to the Lord, the all-powerful one, the one in charge, the object of our faith. See, Abraham and Isaac's suffering closely resemble that of God's and Jesus Christ. Their experience is a portrayal of the Father, the Son, and the cross. And Abraham's obedience glorified God's name, didn't it? In many ways. His faith grew. And our faith grows when our faith knows. When we have seen him work before. I've seen him do these things before in my life. Now I'm just experiencing something bigger. But I know he's going to come through because I trust in him. I love him. You see, this, I believe is the unwavering, unstaggering faith that Paul is referring to here in these verses. I don't think he's referring to it where it started, and that's what accounted to him for righteousness. We already know he had that. But this faith about Isaac, I think Paul's going back to Genesis 22 and saying he had unwavering faith. But with that unwavering, unstaggering faith comes everything from beginning to the point where he's at now. Our faith grows. That's the faith that he's talking about. A faith that began as a mustard seed, when enlightened, a faith that grew, and in that growth made poor decisions at times, 
a walk of faith that attempted to fulfill and finish God's plans in the flesh, a faith that was rebuked and instructed to get Abraham back on track, a faith that eventually learns to trust in all circumstances because it's been tested and it's been tried. I believe this is why the Apostle Paul refers to Abraham so much. I believe the Apostle Paul has a hero in the Bible other than Jesus Christ. I believe his hero is Abraham. I do. That's why the Apostle Paul can say, follow me as I follow Christ. And I don't believe he's saying it because look at how well I'm in obedience all the time. Because everybody knew who Paul was. They knew his whole life. Not because I'm some super saint that never messes up. No, follow me because I experienced God's grace and I want you to see the same thing in my life. I don't need you just to see all the good stuff, but you get to see all the bad stuff that comes with it. And you get to see the grace. And through all of Abraham's walk and the Apostle Paul's walk, did God ever leave them or forsake them when they messed up? No. But there are people who teach that. There are people who believe that. And it's just not true. And through all of Paul's life from beginning to end, did God ever leave him? No. He will never leave us either. He'll never leave us or forsake us. Abraham then is not only our great example of saving faith, is he? He is our great example of sanctifying faith. An example of walking with God. You see now why we set up all this? This then is the examination of the great faith that he had, the analysis of it. Against all odds, the Apostle Paul is telling us that Abraham trusted God. He believed the promises he made to him. Not because he had this tremendous faith up front. He had a faith that was tested and tried for one of the greatest events in his life. In that event that glorified God and believed His promises, and we, go th- we all go through that stuff. We all might be going through that right now. Paul is telling us that Abraham believed in the promise to be the father of many nations at a time when there was no reasonable human hope to believe it. And sometimes in our lives there's no human hope to believe God's going to do what He says He's going to do, yet we need to trust Him anyway. That's the analysis of the faith. And now... We'll wrap up with the effects of faith or the application or the answer. Verse 22 in Romans, as we go back to chapter 4, it says, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. The divine principle that saving faith comes to every person who trusts trusts in God, in Jesus Christ who He sent, applies to who? Every person who trusts in that fact. Every person. There is no part of Scripture that was given solely for the time that it was written. It's written for all of us, for all saints, for all times, for all places. Listen real quickly to Romans 15.4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comforts of the Scriptures might have hope. And what Paul is writing here gives us all certain hope, I believe. We're all saved on exactly the same principles as Abraham was saved, which we've gone through. And Abraham had limited revelation, yet we have so much more revelation. He was given time Uh, He was given light enough to see that God would raise him from the dead and see our Savior. We've been given all those facts that God did raise Jesus from the dead, that God did provide the Lamb of God, and he's still Jehovah Jireh. And anyone who believes in Christ and his work on the cross, they have the promise that those who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What a great example. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, Lord, getting us through this section of divine power, not human effort, Lord. It's all by you. It's all for you. It all glorifies your name. And Lord, we're thankful for that. Lord, help us to apply this faith to our our lives, remembering that 
through the tests and the trials, Lord, that you put us through. Everything else can become a trial, but the things that you put us through, Lord, are for our growth and help us to learn to trust you completely, implicitly, Lord. And we thank you for that, Father.